being back with you all this morning and welcome to those who might be joining us online as well. We recognize that there are any number of reasons why people are continuing to stay at home, but know that we love you, that we miss you, and we can't wait for you to get back here with us whenever the time is right for you. Um, I think it goes without saying that 2020 is has been the most challenging year of our lives, and it is one of the hardest things to try to describe. I was actually thinking this week, like, okay, if I fast forward five years from now, how would I describe 2020? And sometimes words fail us, don't they? But that's why we have memes. And so there are a couple of memes for me that that really capture what 2020 has been like. So if 2020 was a slide, I think it would kind of look like this. By far the, the best one for me that really captures the essence of 2020, this right here. If 2020 was a scented candle, yeah, it would be all kinds of portageons just light, lit up on fire. I mean, this has been a dumpster fire of a year. It's been all kinds of things that have happened. And if we tried to explain 2020, we would use words like crazy, stressful, unprecedented, overwhelming, uncertain, divisive, contentious. I mean, on and on, we could kind of try to, try to describe it. I mean, we, we started out in March, and you had the stress and the fear and the uncertainty of this pandemic that hit us. And then after that, there was all the isolation and can we go back to school, not go back to school? Can we ever leave our houses again? And, and then the, you had the, the social justice issues that, that came back into the forefront of the national conversation. It's just been raw emotion on top of raw emotion on top of raw emotion. Big event after big event that just kept coming wave after wave. And, and I don't know if you heard this or not, but we actually have an election coming up here. On, did you, you guys, have you guys heard this? Yeah, uh, maybe it hasn't hit your news feed yet, but it turns out that there are actually a couple of guys that want to be president of our country. And people have really strong opinions about which candidate is the best one, and they have equally strong opinions about those that don't agree with them about who the next candidate should be. And even in this room, I mean, we have Christians who, who love Jesus, who end up on opposite sides of the aisle. And they are equally convinced that their faith is informing their stance. And as we look at, at the election, a lot of people are excited. There are people that, uh, that, that are afraid of what's going to happen, thinking that if one guy wins, the economy is going to tank. If another guy wins, that what's going to happen with, with the national unity or the, the divisiveness that we have. Uh, and, and I think that this combination of this, all these emotions and these huge events have created a time when I, I can't imagine us ever being... Um, more divided than what we are right now as a country. We're so quick to accuse, quick to, to belittle or dismiss or distrust everyone that doesn't believe the same thing that we do. And it's not just out there in culture. It, it has crept into the church. I think we're all swimming in these toxic waters of political unrest and political division. This year has been this perfect storm where disunity and division have taken root and risen to the forefront in our country. And I think that's almost to be expected in our society. But, but when it comes to Jesus' church, it, we're called to something different. When it comes to his church, we're called 
to be the model of what unity looks like, what unity sounds like to the, to the world that's watching. Here was Jesus' prayer, right? As he was with the Father, this was shortly before he would be arrested. One of his final prayers for, and one of his final hopes for his church was this. He says that they, that, that, that his church, that, that believers, may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then listen to this. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus' prayer, his hope for his church was that unity would rule the day between believers. That they, This wasn't just some secondary issue for him. It wasn't just like this idea that a little add-on. Wouldn't it be nice if my followers just got along. That, that's not the tone that we see here. Unity is meant to be one of the defining characteristics of Jesus' church. He says that, that almost like the, the unity that he and the Father had. But then look at the reason why. He says, he says then, that, that is, if my church, if Jesus' church gets unity right, that, that even though we are this diverse group of people, if we can get unity right, then somehow that communicates to the watching world the truth of the gospel of grace, that the world will know that they are loved by God, that God sent Jesus by the unity that's seen within the church. That's an astounding thought for us to think through. And in this unprecedented disunity that we see throughout our country and throughout our community and the world, we have this opportunity and, and I would say a responsibility as believers to model that there's another way, to, to show that Jesus' Jesus's church is, is distinct, that, that it transcends the differences of opinion that others might have on these secondary issues, and that we can actually disagree on some things and yet still love unconditionally. We've been in this letter from Peter to the early church over these last six weeks, and we're finishing it up this morning and, and over and over again, we have been reminded that we are to live different lives, that we are called to be exiles, to be foreigners, that this world is not our final home, that, that we are to think differently, that, that we are to be motivated by a different set of values and principles. And one of those is that we chase after unity within the church. So this morning, as we wrap this up, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5, if you have your Bibles there, or you can turn on your electronic devices and get to 1 Peter chapter 5. And just as a reminder, this letter was written to, the, to these young believers in this very early church at a time when they were facing all kinds of stress and uncertainty and suffering in their lives. In fact, in, in, in five relatively short chapters, Peter addresses the issue of hardship or suffering 21 different times. And we all know this in our own lives, that, that when hardship comes, when hard times enter into our lives, it, it tends to bring out the worst in us, that our filters go away, our attitudes change, tempers get shorter, our, our words get sharper and, harder, and have a harder edge to them. And what Peter was, Peter was noticing was that the pressures from outside in culture were starting to make their way inside of the church, and the relationships were beginning to splinter as a result of that. So Peter addresses it head-on in 1 Peter chapter 5. And what we're going to discover here, just these few verses this morning, are some principles that will allow us to not just survive Tuesday and the unrest that, that's been around that, but we can actually chase after love 
and unity for the rest of our lives, even when we disagree with someone. So here's what Peter tells them in 1 Peter 5, 5. He says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. That, that word humility there, it, it literally means to get low. It's this idea that, that we let go of our rights, that we abdicate or we abandon our rights for the sake of others, that we elevate their needs above our own. And he uses this phrase that you, you're to clothe yourself. And it has with it this word picture of, of tying on a servant's apron, that that is the attitude that we're supposed to have, that we're going to be looking for opportunities within the church to love each other by serving each other. And in their day, as in ours, this was countercultural. And in the Greco-Roman culture that, that Peter was writing to, um, they despised the quality of humility. That they just saw it as a as a sign of weakness. The only people that that were humble were those that had been conquered, those who had been defeated. It wasn't something that you aspire to. And the same thing happens in our culture. Humility is not a popular human trait. Uh, in, the, in American society. Our, our culture is almost hostile towards humility. It's all about elevate yourself, put yourself first, whatever it takes to promote yourself. And even though this command is so foreign to us in our culture, it is completely necessary. Because if this doesn't take root, if this idea of clothing ourselves in humility, if that doesn't take root in our lives, then we will never have the kind of impact that Jesus intended for his church to have. When you read through the New Testament, you actually see that Scripture over and over again actually paints humility as a sign of strength. It's actually a sign of maturity. One of the chief characteristics of the Savior that we follow is humility. That, that he left, that he abandoned all of his rights and all of the privilege that he had in heaven to come down to earth. That he elevated our need of salvation above his own needs and he died on the cross to save us. And so Peter says, taking a look at Jesus' example, clothe yourselves in humility. Find the ways to serve one another. And then Peter gives us some motivation if we're still on the fence about whether or not we want to do this. He says, because God opposes the proud. But let that sink in. I don't know of a scarier phrase to consider uh, other than God opposing, the, the holy, righteous, all-powerful God of the universe opposing us. I, uh, the quickest way to pick a fight with God is to dig in your heels and to stand against him or, or to, to privately refuse to love and to serve someone around you. If you want resistance from God, then be proud. He hates what pride does to us and what it does to our relationships and how it it doesn't serve others. But he goes on, he says, but, but he shows favor to. He gives grace to those that choose this quality of humility. So here's the principle for us. If we're going to elevate unity and chase after that as a church, the first thing that we need to be able to do is to respect everybody. And part of what I mean by that, part of what it means to, to respect others, is to genuinely seek to understand their perspective on things. That, that in humility, we stop, and we listen to each other in love. And, and sadly, that, that does not happen much anymore. 
and that doesn't mean that we have to change what we believe. It doesn't mean that we have to compromise our beliefs. It doesn't mean that, that we can't hold strong convictions on things. But what it does is it means that it recognizes that everybody's viewpoint, that, that everybody's opinion, everybody's perspective, everybody's political stance makes perfect sense to them. They have landed on a conclusion of their own based on certain things. Our worldviews and our perspectives have been largely shaped by things that we have no control over. Where we grew up, the, the households that we believe that, 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 we, that we grew up in, and the beliefs that our parents may have had, our education, the, the things that we have seen, the things that we have experienced in this life, they've all come together to shape the lens through which we look at life. And if we can acknowledge that, then when someone's perspective is different from ours, it doesn't have to be this point of contention. It doesn't have to be this point of division, but actually it can be an opportunity to hear and to understand and to learn some of the things that shaped the way that they view life. We need to be reminded that, that the person that we may be in disagreement with, that that's a real person that was created in the image of God for whom Jesus came and died. And they deserve to be loved unconditionally, regardless of whether or not we may disagree on some secondary issue. The world's going to try to divide you. Society is going to try to bait you into some kind of destructive argument. But we're called to live differently. We're called to uphold a different kind of standard. Jesus calls us to share our differences with brotherly kindness, as if we are family, with gentleness, with sympathy, with empathy, that we can finally find a way to put ourselves in their shoes and see things from their perspective, with patience. He, he commands us to speak to and about one another with words that are kind, with words that are fair, with words that are always seasoned, with grace. He calls us to encourage each other. He says inside the church, we're to bear with one another. We're to, to care for one another with an attitude of Christ. And here's the thing, in, in a room, in a church our size, and probably a church of any size, um, the diversity of experiences and the, the, the diversity of perspectives that are inside the church, it's gonna make this idea of chasing after unity really messy. And it's not going to come natural to us. You're going to have to fight for it. You're going to have to pray for it. You're going to have to sacrifice for it in order for it to happen. So the first thing that we do, if we're going to chase after unity together, is we have to respect everybody. And then Peter goes on in verse 6, and he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. You see, the, the kind of humility that Peter is calling us to is not just uh, respectfully loving people around us, but ultimately it is that we place ourselves under God's mighty hand, that, that we look to him and we submit our lives into his care under his authority, that we rest in his ability, and that we surrender the direction and the leadership of our lives to the lordship of Jesus because we know that he is in control. Because we know that, that in due time, he will, in fact, make all things right. And part of what it means to submit to God's authority includes submitting ourselves or placing ourselves under the authority 
of government. And 1 Peter 2, uh, Peter reminds us in this. He says, submit yourselves, again, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. God, in his sovereignty and in his wisdom, he established government as a means of shaping civil society, of punishing those who do wrong and lifting up, commending those who do right. And submission to any human authority is it's an act of faith. Because anytime that you are submitting yourself, anytime that you are putting yourself under the authority of another fallen human being, we're taking a risk. They, they may use that authority or misuse that authority against us and abuse it. But, but when you submit to another person as a believer, you do so trusting that God is behind them, that God is still in control and acting for our good. By God's grace, we live in a country where we have a say in our government through the election process. But I think for us to make sure, if we're going to chase after unity, the next principle that we have to know is that we have to remember what our ultimate allegiance is. As Christ followers, uh, we are called to be submissive citizens of our government, but with our ultimate allegiance to God. Government is it's a God-ordained institution that God put into place. But our hope is not in an election. Our hope is not in a candidate. Our hope is not in a, a political party. Government can't save us. Government can't change the, the, the heart of another human being. So, so while it serves a purpose, we need to be crystal clear that our ultimate hope, that our ultimate trust, that our ultimate allegiance is only in Christ alone. So we need to make sure that the first hat that we put on in the morning is that of a Christ follower. But before whatever political party you may be affiliated with, before you put on that hat, make sure that you realize that the first hat as a believer is that we are first a Christ follower. No matter who is elected on Tuesday, our God will still be in charge. No matter who holds the office, God still holds the keys of this world. Long before any of us were born, God was ruling the entire universe. And long after the election of 2020, God will still be in control. So what we need to make sure that we do is that we continue to keep first things first. That we make sure that our hope, that our loyalty, that our allegiance is anchored in Jesus. That the first filter that we look through as a Christian is that we are saved by grace, by God's mighty hand. So regardless of which political party you align with, we have to make sure that we understand and that we embrace that I am first and foremost a Christ follower. And, and that will join our hearts together. And that will dictate some of the attitudes that we have and some of the words that we choose. So be involved. D do your research. Do your best to vote in such a way that honors God and, and that respects people. But let's remain united by what connects us all together. That, that's the name of Jesus. So, we respect everybody. We remember that our allegiance is ultimately to Christ. And then we'll close in verse 7. He says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The, that word anxiety there, it's actually a combination of, of two different Greek words that literally means to tear or divide the mind. 
And I think that's such an accurate description of what happens when anxiety or worry starts consuming our thoughts. It's almost like our minds get split in two different directions and we get paralyzed by what's going on around us. And I know that the potential outcome of the election have a lot of people anxious, have a lot of people worried or, or, or frustrated or stressed, about, stressed out about the impacts that it might have on you or your family or, or the direction of the country. So what do we do with those? I mean, those are real human emotions. What do we do with those concerns or, or the stresses that ha happen in our life? I, I think Peter says we have one of two choices. We can either carry it or we can cast it. I think most of the time what we end up doing is we carry, it on, we carry them on our own. We walk through life with these stresses on our shoulders, and as a result, we, we walk around all the time distracted and disturbed and divided in our minds about what to do. But as believers, we have an alternative. Peter says God asks us to cast those worries, those concerns at him. Now, when we do that, that doesn't mean that the issue automatically goes away. There, there may still be some consequences and we still have the uncertainty swirling around us, but what it means is that we're not consumed by it. That, that as an act of faith, I'm actually trusting that God is still in control and that he will handle the consequences and he can handle the weight of it. And why can I trust him? Because Peter reminds us that we have a God who cares for us. I don't know where you come from as far as what you look or how you think about God. A lot of people sometimes think that God's just this aloof, impersonal God out there, but that's not what we read in scripture, that our God is a personal God, that he knows the intimate details, he knows how we're wired and, and the concerns that we have in our lives, and he actually wants us to bring those to him, that he wants to carry those for us because he knows what happens if we don't. He knows the impacts that happen, has on our life if we just walk through life trying to carry all these burdens on our own. So here's the last thing for us to do. That if we're going to maintain unity as a church and to chase after that, instead of being burdened down by all of these stresses of life, that we need to remain in prayer. And I want to give us three primary ways for us to pray, three different categories for us to pray in. The first is for ourselves, or for our hearts specifically. And I think this is critical for us in our fight for unity as a church, because we, when we are under pressure, when we are, we are under stress or anxiety, we, we have a tendency to get overly protective about our turf, whatever that happens to be, or our idea, or our opinion, and we can lash out against anyone else who has a different opinion. I think so often it's, it's the fear of losing control over something, or, or the fear of, of something changes, or of something changing, that often drives this this rhetoric that we see, that this, these destructive attacks and accusations that so often fill our news feeds. So when those feelings start welling up inside, recognize them for what they are, and then you take those to God. When you feel anxious, pray. When you feel angry, pray. When you feel stressed out about the direction of your life or maybe even the direction of the country, go to God in prayer. And what scripture says is that in return, if we will do that, if we will get into the habit of taking these concerns to him, in return, he gives us a peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's a, a reinforcement of what we already know, that God is in control and that he will get us through this. So after we pray for our hearts, then the second thing I'd say is we need to pray for our adversaries. Throughout scripture, we're commanded to pray for everyone. Jesus takes it even a step further and says that we are to pray for our enemies. So if you find yourself in conflict, 
with somebody, pray for them. Don't give in to the temptation to think less of them. Don't give in to the temptation to, to entertain these evil thoughts or, or wishing ill will towards them. We are to actively pray for their good. I have found it in my own life that it's really hard to continue to, to harbor bitterness towards somebody and pray for them at the same time. That God does a work in our lives as we continue to pray for those that we may have a disagreement with. And then the third thing, third area of, of prayer for us is to pray for our leaders. And scripture is crystal clear on this. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Timothy says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Regardless of, of what you may think about our current leader or the future leaders that may be coming into office, we are commanded to pray for our leaders, that they would be attentive to God's leading in their lives, that, that they would understand and respond to the truth of God's gospel of grace in their lives, and that they would lead in such a way that we could freely chase after pursuing a life of holiness and godliness. In two days, we are going to elect the next president of the United States. And some people will be happy about the outcome. Some people will be sad. Some people will be depressed no matter who ends up winning. <laughs> but as Christians, we have this amazing opportunity in this divided world that we live in to give them a glimpse of the impact that God's grace has had on our lives to stand firmly under the banner that we all claim to follow, this banner of God's grace and the lordship of Christ in our lives, that we can actually show them what unity, true unity looks like, to show them that it's actually possible to love unconditionally someone that you may not even agree with as we chase after unity. So be respectful. Be kind. Be gracious. Be be curious about your fellow believers. See, try to see life from their perspective. Remember that our hope, that our identity, that our allegiance is not to some political party or to some opinion, but it's to Jesus. And then remain before God in prayer. Pray for yourself first. Make sure that you're keeping a close eye on your heart. There are things that get in our hearts sometimes that muck everything up. And that once we start recognizing what some of those are, that we need to take those as see that as an opportunity to take that to God to, to get our hearts clean. Pray for those that you might not disagree, that you may not agree with. And then continue to pray for our leaders, that God would continue to move through them, recognizing that He is the one who put them in that position and that He is still in control. So we pray for them while God is still in control. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you um, that your word remains so relevant, that it's active, that it's breathing, that, that we can apply the truth of your word in our lives today. And I know for me, uh, the, just looking at the last three or four months of 
just the division and disunity and the fractured ways that some relationships have gone. It's, it's heartbreaking for me, and I know it's heartbreaking for you as well. And that's why, Jesus, you prayed, you saw that this was a, a, at least an option, and you prayed that your church would chase after unity above all else. So, Father, help us to see that. That's a challenge. We, we come in here from all kinds of different diverse viewpoints and backgrounds and experiences. But that's something we can chase after. By the power of your grace, we can chase after it. So help us to be respectful and kind, to seek to really understand, to make sure that our first filter that we look through in the day is that of a follower of Christ and that we remain in prayer. God, we need your help. We continue to pray that, that you would strengthen us to be able to see the areas where we need to uh, apply this and then to have the courage to make the changes that we need to. Thank you for the grace that makes this possible. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.